I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Hello, Rebecca. Hi. Thanks for joining us on the Listen In podcast. Tell our audience a little bit about you. I live in Northwest Montana in the USA. It's up in the Northwest corner of the country and we border part of Canada. So it's in the mountains. It's fairly rural. I've been here for 40 years and I am a certified professional coach. I've been coaching for almost 20 years in a variety of sectors and contexts. And that's kind of what I do. And a lot of it is online, as you can imagine. It's international. I've worked in, wow, education, healthcare, the corporate world, city government, state government. It's a really broad and fascinating arena to be buying in right now. We met each other through our coaching network. And I remember when we connected, we connected, especially on this topic about listening. And I would love for you to share your story about when you first started becoming aware of listening and its impact. Yes. Well, this is probably unusual, but I taught special education and kindergarten in the public schools in two countries and three states in the U.S. And I was trained with young children with disabilities to listen very deeply so that I understood what was going on with them. Regardless of their IQ or intellectual capacity, many children had language delays and it had nothing to do with how smart they were. And so I was intentionally trained to listen deeply to understand what they were thinking, what they were actually asking. And so I became very aware of listening and in the process of that, noticed how few of us actually know how to listen, adults in particular. When it really came to my attention, I was also involved in prevention efforts, prevention of poor outcomes for children. And I worked all the way up through high school and I would ask kids, if I could tell adults anything, what would you like them to know? And almost without exception, Raquel, these kids anywhere from, you know, like 12 years old on up is adults need to learn how to listen. They tell us to listen all the time, but they've never taught us how, and they don't listen. The other thing they said to me is, and adults need to lighten up. And I quit teaching in 1997, and when I left the public schools, even young children, when they were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, which I always thought was two questions, who do you want to be, and what do you want to do with that, 
even young children were saying, I don't know if I want to grow up. I don't see any happy adults. And it was stunning to me because we were starting to get really in a hurry. And kids would just say they're all stressed out. None of them look very happy. <laughs> and so it was my background in education and um, special education and prevention and creating protective factors for kids to have healthy outcomes. And the other piece is that I'm a research person, and I started studying brain development and neuroscience before it was a thing, because I wanted to understand how do we understand each other if you can't talk. So I think key message about listening is it's a skill, and it takes a lot of practice. And very few of us were ever taught, intentionally taught, how to listen. So when you think of being uh, taught to intentionally listen, and I'm sure a lot of people have never had listening classes. And even I think about my background studying interpersonal and organizational communication, where we did have some listening classes like active listening, or we had to listen to recordings and um, memorize content and then answer questions, these types of listening skills. When you think of listening, though, and after what you heard from the kids and what you learned, if you would be able to put into a few sentences what it means to intentionally learn how to listen or how to get started, what would you say? It's a big question. I think if anyone is taught to listen, they're taught to listen for information potential of teaching deep listening even to children is we listen to connect. So in other words, even small children and with adults now, they turn and face each other and they look at each other and they listen to connect with the person they're listening to. The information is secondary. It's a different way of being. So I'll give you an example from young children, and then I'll give you an example from people in the corporate world. When kids are little and somebody hurts somebody else, most adults tell them to say they're sorry. And I remember watching them and going, I'm going to tell them to say something that isn't true for them. <laughs> and so I would say, stand face to face and look at each other. And they would do that. And then whoever hurt the other one, I would say, ask her if she's okay. That's very different than sorry. So. When they would say, are you okay, then typically whoever got hurt would say, yeah, I'm okay. And I go, no, tell them. It hurts when you hit me. I don't like it when you hit me. Don't hit me. So in that four or five second exchange, they learned how to see each other and connect their behavior with the impact of their behavior. And they didn't just go around and say, sorry. They said, are you okay? And it starts when we're really little. And so in, you know, fast forward to 50-year-olds. One of the questions I ask with all of my clients, and especially when I'm with a big group and we're, I'm saying the word training in quotes, I ask people to reflect on what do people do when you walk in the room? And a lot of people don't even know what that question means. They kind of look at me like, what does that mean? And then some of them will go, ooh. And that's a piece of homework. Like, what do people do when you walk in the room? And I had a city manager that was his first homework when we first started working together, me coaching him. And he called me back a week later and he said, if they scatter like mice, is that bad? <laughs> and I said, oh, it's, it's just all information. But he said, I've never paid attention. I've just never paid attention because, you know, they look away. It, some people smile and come toward me. It's that awareness, that self-awareness piece of I have an impact just by walking in the room. 
and listening to yourself, looking around and noticing the people around you. Those are all skills and they can be taught and they take a tremendous amount of practice and humility. When we were having the conversation before we started this to record, uh, you had mentioned that this past year has been very a very interesting year in terms of the people who are coming to you asking for help and how that connects to the piece around listening, which may be different than most of our listeners consider. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and even share an example. Sure. If I had to choose a word that brings people to coaching or their version of what they think training is, and I'm not dismissing training at all. I just left. I do less training and much more coaching because I want to stay. I want to stay and see the change happen. That's my commitment. And I figured that out a long time ago when I was doing a lot of training. So what people come to me for is they're overwhelmed. And the form that that overwhelmment takes is they're working too much. They're working too long, too many hours. They're stressed. They don't feel like they're really getting anything done. They're just busy a lot. There's this sort of frenetic pace and a belief that if I'm busy, I'm getting things done. And there's kind of this curse of efficiency and productivity. In fact, I had a client say, I need to give the appearance of being busy. And so they come because they're overwhelmed. They know they're too busy. They're working too much and they're stressed. And the other reason is they come because they know they're not communicating effectively with each other or in their team or, and they, they don't know what to do about that. And so they'll just ask for communication training. So I want to give you a quick example that may fit in here. I was coaching a young woman in her 30s who got her dream job in a big marketing and ad agency in a big city in the northwest of the U.S. And she said one day, it's hard to step back when all the momentum is to get it out the door. And I said, what would stepping back get you? And her answer, Raquel, was if we had taken five minutes and really looked at the project that we were being offered, we would have put more people on the project. We would have allocated more resources to the project. We would have had a completely different timeline. And the quality could have been amazing. And we just jumped on it and said yes and hit the ground running. And she said, I don't even want my name on it now because we did it in such a hurry. And so I think if there's a cultural norm, at least here, where in the U.S., it's we're busy, we're busy, we're busy, and we're all stressed out. And so there's a lack of fulfillment, a lack of a sense of purpose. The busyness is too much. And I, I, I think people know there's something else, but they're not sure what it is, which means that, you know, these, these cultures of disconnection, right? We have cultures where people really aren't that connected to each other. So take this example and now bridge it to this piece on listening and how you help this person to intentionally listen in this particular situation. Okay. So the first thing is listening to herself. And going in, take a breath, bring your awareness below 
the busyness in your mind. That's enough for most people. It takes a lot of practice to get below the busy mind and get quiet and get settled. That can take about as long as what I just said. Take a breath, go inside. Bring your awareness to your breath and take your awareness below all that chatter into a deeper, quieter place. What do you just know? So there's a deeper inner knowing. And her answer in this particular story that I should have said something. So that awareness of, wow, I'm not speaking up. I'm not saying I have a question. I'm just going along with the momentum of getting it out the door. So the first step is take a breath, go inside, get quiet. That takes a lot of practice for most people, Raquel. And the first piece of homework for most of my clients is one minute, twice a day. Take a breath, one minute of deep breathing, set a timer, sit back, take a breath, and go inside and breathe deeply for one, a full minute. That sounds like nothing. The neuroscience is that the more often you do that, the faster those neural pathways are built and the easier it is to get there. That practice, the more you do it, the more it'll be available when you really need it, when you're really stressed out. So beginning with breath, and then what that leads to is, so what is the question you want to ask? Are you willing? Are you willing to be the one in the room that says, hang on, I have a question. Let's step back and look at this for a couple minutes. That takes a lot of courage. So it's breaking it down into really small steps. And we don't have a patient culture. <laughs> it requires patience. It requires commitment. So I was just thinking, often we complain that other people are not listening to us because we're too much in a hurry. In the situation that you described to me and the way that you described, that was only one example of many, by having this person pause, breathe, and calm their mind so they can listen to themselves, that actually will influence them speaking out more than perhaps this idea that others are not listening to them. Like sometimes we point our finger to others, but it could be that we, if we look at ourselves first and get clear with ourselves first, that actually when we say something, then it matters. Yeah, absolutely. And there are lots of other factors that influence that that I won't go into, but listening is a skill and it takes a lot of practice and it, it begins with listening to ourselves. I hear a lot from, and this is not a gender bias thing, it's just my observation, is lots of women don't speak up because they say, they literally say, I know a lot and I never say it because I will be dismissed or ignore. They feel like they will be dismissed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they will find another way in the hierarchy to make sure that what needs to get done will get done. But they know that just speaking up in a meeting is probably not the, the best way for that to happen. You know, they kind of go around. I call it getting in the revolving door behind someone and getting out in front of them and they never saw you. <laughs> 
<laughs> you just know what needs to happen. And, and so that's some of the not speaking up is because they haven't been heard before. It's not uncommon. And it's, again, it's not a gender bias thing. It's just sort of how it works in some cultures. So that's a piece. The busyness and the belief that we don't have time, that I hear that a lot too. I don't have time to listen. I don't have time to breathe. People literally say that. I don't have time to breathe. Let me offer an exercise. This is a good time to put this in here. So when I say go, Raquel, we're both going to do this. I'm actually going to time it because that's what I do when I do this. When I say go, hold your breath. You ready? Okay. okay. I'm ready. Go. Stop. How long do you think that was? Five seconds? Ten seconds? I don't know. I didn't count. (laughs) It's hard to know, right? It's eight seconds. Yeah. The reason eight seconds matters, and this is funny because most people, this is what they'll go away with after five hours of training. (laughs) This is what sticks. This is neuroscience. It takes eight seconds for a fully intact, healthy adult brain to take information in, process it, and formulate a meaningful response. Eight seconds. So let's do it again. Let's just try it again. Ready? When I say go, hold your breath. Go. Okay. How often in our day-to-day interactions with anyone, not just at work, Do we say, give me a second, give me a minute. I want to think about what you just said. How often do we just stop and really listen and say, this young woman I told you about, she started to say to people, give me a minute. I want to think about what you just said before I respond. I don't want to just come off with something and then come back later and go, you know, I thought about what I said and here's what I really meant to say. It's actually faster (laughs) to take eight seconds. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, some people, it's it's interesting. People feel like they have to respond right away or else they'll look dumb or they they should have an answer or who knows what. Um, And this strategy, like what you just said, or telling people, hey, let's talk later when I can really, you know, put some attention to it or let me think about it. Can we talk about it later? You know, to actually have that as a quick, as the automatic response. Um, to then be able to think more effectively and have an answer that really fits and is, um, let's say, authentic with the person and what they want to say, you know, not just saying something, you know, something that really matters and makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like they almost, people almost need permission to be able to do that. Exactly. Permission is the perfect word, Raquel, because it's like, wow, that's kind of weird and I'm uncomfortable and what are people going to think? And and there, there's often at the beginning of a group session, like when I did all the city managers from five states in this part of the country, and the very beginning, I asked them, how many of you think you're supposed to have the answers? And they all nodded. Yeah, well, yeah, duh. That's why I'm the city manager, <laughs> you know? And then I said, how many of you think you're supposed to have 
all the answers. And they nodded. And I said, how many of you think you have to have the right answers? And then they started getting really uncomfortable. And they're still nodding. And I said, is that possible? Is that sustainable? And they're just staring at me. And I've done this many, many times, but this particular group sticks with me. And then I said, how often do you all see each other? And they said, once a year. And then I asked, how often do you call each other? And all of them went, that never crossed our minds. <laughs> and I said, you're out in the middle of nowhere trying to be a city manager, and these are your colleagues. Call each other. Surely they've seen some of what you're dealing with. So this disconnection, Raquel, I'm not telling stories because I'm trying to make myself look good. It's that we forget that we can stop and we can say, wait a second, I need help. I don't have the answer. I don't need to look good. And what you just said is so true. It's, well, we have to maintain this impression that we know what we're doing. And it's like, well, what if we don't? And the younger generation, this may or may not be happening in Europe, but I hear these phrases. I said, I have to give the appearance of being busy. And what they call it is imposter syndrome. I just heard that last week from a client here. <laughs> it's been around here for like a few years and it's mostly 30 somethings who go into their new careers and they go, everybody's going to find out. I don't know what I'm doing. I have imposter syndrome and I have to smile because we all had imposter syndrome when we were in our thirties. We just didn't name it. We didn't have language for it. And then the other pieces that come up consistently and this is a factor, I think, Raquel, our mom guilt, dad guilt. I'm so busy, I never see my family, or I'm so busy and in such a hurry that I'm kind of a witch when I get home. There's no time for me, no space for me. I don't even know what I want. So what I hear is my intuition has been telling me to take care of myself for years, but I just ignore it. So intuition, I teach a lot about intuition, especially intuition as a leadership skill. And essentially, it's what, what do you already know and how do you know it? And what if you actually listen to that? What kinds of choices could you make from a place of a deeper inner knowing? And then where do really good questions come from? Really good questions are usually really intuitive. But we have to stop. We have to take eight seconds and say, give me a minute. I want to process this for a second, or can we get together later, or something besides just blurt it out and move on. Problem with blurting it out and moving on, and I literally see people chasing each other down the hall going, do you have a minute? Do you have a minute? Yeah, just walk with me. I'm listening. Then we have to go back and go, what did you say? Or I can't remember what we agreed to. Or, you know, we just aren't really present. Because we're afraid if we stop moving, we won't be productive. And it's a belief. It's a belief. I'm curious, when you think about, I know you do a lot of work with people in their 30s and 40s, you know, uh, young professionals. And um, what thoughts do you have about bringing, besides right now, you're having people kind of pause, listen to themselves, you're bringing in meditation, you're breathing, uh, breathing techniques. What are some 
other ways that maybe people could consider bringing listening into the organization or in their teams, maybe in ways that they have not thought about, even th thinking more from a team or a group of people moving beyond the, the individual. Right. Here's what I think would be cool. I've never seen it happen like yet. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> maybe after this podcast, someone will try it out and yeah, it, let it us is, know. Listening becomes a core value. And they'll look around and go, oh, I don't know, they're on the wall somewhere. And it'll be things like communication or compassion is a big one in healthcare. And when I look at core values, they have to be translatable into behaviors or they're just nice ideas. And so one of my questions is, if I followed you around, would I know this matters to you? How would I know? What would I see? What would I hear? Pretend I'm following you around for a day. How would I know that listening matters to you? Would I see you listening? Would I see people listening to each other? And so in my world, if listening was a core value and anyone was willing to practice, practice it as a skill that makes a difference, it would shift cultures. I believe that. I think listening is the skill that makes the biggest difference in an environment. But most of the environments that we work in, for some of us that we even live in, don't support deep listening. And I learned early on when I was teaching my clients how to be good listeners that they were working in environments that didn't value listening. They had to practice more and work harder and stick with it because there wasn't a lot of support in that environment for that skill being developed. And it takes a lot of self-awareness and a lot of willingness to try something different and to do things differently. So I'll give you another example. I was working with a team and this the guy who was the head of sales, everybody said it's him. He's the one that's making this hard. He's the one that is, you know, ruining everything. And so what was fascinating is when I started working with him, and we were breaking it down into little steps. And I said, so I want you to try practicing being quiet while someone else is talking and taking a few seconds and then asking a meaningful question and not listening to reply or listening to have the answer or listening to be right. And then he just looked at me like, how did you know? <laughs> and it was because everybody knew, right? He was always right about everything. And so he started to practice listening very intentionally and asking meaningful questions. And one of the people on his team, who I was also coaching, said, he's changing. He's easier to talk to. He's listening more. And then I asked, have you told him that you're noticing that? And he said, well, no. And I said, do you want him to keep doing that? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah. And I said, then tell him that it's working. Tell him that you notice that he's listening better and he's asking real questions and it's easier to talk to him now. That's how we learn. When people are talking too much or speaking gets more attention than the listening. And when listening is done right, it doesn't usually... They just know it feels better and they keep going instead of, but when um, people don't listen, then they know, then they tend to complain about it. <laughs> right. Um, and then this whole idea of where do good questions come from? How do you coach people about good questions? I was working with a group of naturopaths, which are, they're doctors, they're physicians, and they do integrative and complementary care. And it was a whole room full of them. And I was pairing them up and they were practicing listening and hearing what their partners were saying. And then I just, this 
thought came to me and I looked at all because I was watching a woman listening to another woman. And I could tell by looking at her that she had this question that she was dying to ask. But they were doing this, one person talks for one minute, the other person only listens. And so when we finished that two minutes, I looked at this woman and I said, you had a question that you really wanted to ask her. What was it? And she asked it and everybody in the room kind of went, wow, that's a really good question. So I looked at all of them and said, where do good questions come from? And I honestly didn't know. I just was putting it out there. These are physicians. They listen all the time, hopefully. And this woman who I'd seen the question in her mind said, the best questions actually come from our patients. They have questions and we don't ask them what their questions are. The other thing, and this was really kind of a profound moment for me, is, and sometimes our patient's soul will tell us which question to ask. I'll just get this knowing that I need to ask this question. So it's very intuitive. Her word for it was the patient's soul tells me what to ask them. My word for that would be, it's intuitive. It's the question's hanging somewhere in the air and it shows up and we just blurt it out. Most of us who've been through coach training, like very, you know, I went through a lot of very rigorous coach training for years. And one of the first things we're taught to do is listen. And the second thing is ask powerful questions. Well, really powerful questions are not, you don't have those on a list. They come they show up. They're very intuitive. And one of the skills that coaches, most coaches are trained to develop and use intentionally is intuition. I was thinking about coaches and, or if you're looking at leaders and organizations or even your thirties to forties clients, you say, you know, uh, ask questions. If a question comes to you, then, you know, you blurt it out. There's a lot of people who probably have questions, but they're afraid to blurt it out. Exactly. Well, it isn't safe. Psychological safety. So people don't ask questions in environments that aren't safe, and they can sense that. It's like, I, it's not worth it. I'm just not going to ask. I'm not going to ask in front of everybody, that's for sure. And I'm not going to ask if this person's in the front of the room, because that person doesn't. Here's a distinction, Raquel, that I learned along the way, is that if I ask, say, the person in the front of a room, if I ask a question, I'm not questioning them. I'm questioning what we're talking about. Well, lots of people don't know the difference. So as I work my way through education in different settings, in public schools, and then especially in higher ed, I know you're in higher ed, and I worked for a few universities along the way, and I found out really quickly that you don't get to ask the person in the front of the room a question because they don't like being questioned. And then I was like, oh, I'm not questioning them. I'm just questioning what we're talking about. So if the unspoken agreement is you don't ever question the boss or the person in the front of the room, whatever their role is, then how do you learn? So it takes tremendous courage and willingness and vulnerability to say, I have a question. And I learned somewhere along the way to say, and I'm not questioning you. I'm questioning the process we're discussing right now. I have a question about the process. Well, nobody wants to do that. I had people come to my office after those meetings and say, thank you for asking what none of us was willing to ask. Because it wasn't psychologically safe to ask questions. 
in some situations, so there might be place situations where it's not psychologically safe because of, you know, the person at the front of the room isn't, hasn't been open in the past or whatever. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you're somebody that comes in and really does, you know, you're a leader that really does want to listen to those questions. You know, they want to move out of the bubble that they are in because people don't ask those questions. And yet because of past experiences or past, I don't know, even cultures and whatnot, people are still perceive it as unsafe, even if it may not be that unsafe. I found that also some of those tough questions, if they're done in a descriptive manner, not a judgmental manner, but a more descriptive manner in an appropriate context, those tough questions can actually really support a team or a group to move together to get something out in the air that has been there the whole time. (laughs) but Mm -hmm. doesn't get spoken about. And just the fact that they talk about it, then it finally, it's like a release and they can move on. Right. The what's the hard questions that's not being asked right now. And you have to build a lot of trust. You have to build a lot of trust and to create, I often work with teams to develop group agreements. One person talks at a time. We don't interrupt. We listen deeply it's going to take practice. We don't have side conversations while somebody's, you know, it's just really basic stuff. And, and people resist it because they go, well, we're not kids. We're not children. We don't need that. And it's like, well, what's getting in the way of a hard question being asked or kind of structure needs to be in place so that we know there's a time at our staff meeting weekly where we get to ask questions, even hard questions. Yeah, the structure is really important. The structure is huge. It's huge. And then once people go, okay, this feels really weird, but we'll try it. Then it starts to open up. Then safety happens. Then the best questions are asked and people are actually being heard. I'll give you an example from a client. I get most of my my tools from my clients because they go out and try stuff and then call me. And I had a woman who had a weekly team meeting on Monday morning. She happened to be in the State Department of Public Health. And she would send out a question on Friday by email and say, this is a think about question. And when you come to the staff meeting on Monday morning, each person will have one minute to share their thoughts. And she set it up that way. So and she had 10 people on her team. So it took you know, probably 15 minutes total. But here's the question. And let's just go around the circle and hear each each of you and what came up when you saw that question. And then they started to build trust because they started being heard. They started being listened to. You know, it was one person's talking at a time for one minute. And she started doing, she called it the reflect and share. She made all this up. I didn't teach her how to do it. And then they they started coming to the meeting, like really excited. Nobody was missing the meetings. People were contributing. It became safe to ask questions and to share ideas. And so their meetings became much more creative and fruitful and meaningful because everybody had a chance to be heard. And it was a group agreement. This is how we do it. And then other people were going, what's going on in her meetings that makes everybody never miss the meeting? You know, it was kind of a, because we're just doing death by meetings. You know that people are just so done with going to meetings. 
Well, you know, right now, um, because, you know, most people are at home because of the coronavirus, there's a lot of meetings being done online via video. And I've heard uh, many times this last couple of weeks that people are pretty exhausted from all the online video meetings. And it's almost like people are so worried that people aren't going to work, but they're having all these extra meetings and doing all this these video conferencing, which some of it is important and it's good to connect, but not at the level that they're doing it. And it's starting to wear people out. There's also a fear, which is interesting in the younger generation, because they want to be able to, I'm generalizing, but this is who I get to work with, which I'm so grateful, but it's like, I will show up, you know, like nine to three. Then I'm going to go my kids up and have a life and then go back online at nine o'clock at night and finish my work and show up at the office again tomorrow at nine. But I'm not going to go sit in front of a cubicle for eight hours because it's not productive. I want a life. And so this whole work-life balance thing challenges organizations and companies is how do I know you're working if I can't see you? So the accountability structures of if you're at home, I don't believe you're working. What are the measurable outcomes that I can expect if you leave at three and then I just have to trust that you're going to go back online at night and get your work done? So that's a shift that we're in right now. And those accountability structures is what makes people uncomfortable. However, another shift that I've seen in younger people, and maybe some of your listeners will resonate with this, is their core values are about family, community relationships, flexibility, those are new. My generation, that wasn't, yeah, the shift in core values are that younger people consistently, one of their core values is community, connection, family. They want time with their family and their friends and and, their, and they care about their community in a different way. And, and flexibility is almost always in the top five. I need the flexibility to have a life and still get a lot of stuff done that matters to me. And I need to know when to turn it off. And I need permission to turn it off because I'm not being present with my family because I'm still on my computer at home. You know, I wonder how like these values, you know, that that you mentioned, I wonder a lot of times when organizations think of values that they bring to work, they're thinking more only about the organization. But if you start thinking that part of the extended organization is are actually the families that belong to the employees, you know, and that you make the, and that we're part of the community, the organization being a part of the community, then it would be interesting to look at what could change in the approach and the structures in a way that really lives out those values within the organization. So then people come quote unquote, to the meetings that your your client was doing, they would want to come to the organization and come to work or, you know, get their work done. And these Zoom meetings or whatever platforms we're using now because of the staying home, there, as you know, Raquel, leading a meeting on virtually is an art. It is. <laughs> you don't do it. The, if you do it the same way you do it in person, you will lose people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's it sort of, it's not just about, and teaching online, as you know, is, that's an art. It's not everybody sit there while I talk. No way. 
because no one's engaged. You know, I, my, to be honest, my online classes, which are now I've had to switch my classes at the university to online, you know, because of being at home and we are, you know, using Zoom at this point in time and all the students show up. <laughs> And that's not always the case. And I know that a big part of it is because I can put them out into breakout rooms and they get to connect with each other because right now they're at home. They don't get to see their friends and that's important to them. And so I've had to restructure how I do things to make sure. I mean, I do group activities also in person, but I can't do the same ones that I do in class. I have to change things a little bit, but I also know I have to do that um, because then that makes them have fun and they learn something. So I'm really putting them to work. So they're helping me to create the class through their group work. Well, and people are craving connection. I think we know that. I think we've finally established the fact that we are mammals and that we really need to be connected with each other. And there's a whole neuroscience thing about limbic resonance and being a mammal, but, you know, we crave connection. We're wired for connection. We're just not very good at it. And part of, you know, I believe one of the most important skills to develop in order to really truly connect is learning how to listen to ourselves, learning how to listen to each other in deeper ways, learning to hear what's not being said, being comfortable with quiet, allowing good questions to emerge you know, one of my questions is, what is curiosity? What is it? How do we know when we're being curious? When was the last time you just asked a question because you just didn't know anything about something? And as an early childhood educator, I became keenly aware that we start shushing little kids when they're really little and tell them to stop asking questions. And I worked with kids who who were learning how to talk <laughs> and I needed them to ask questions. How do you know when you are curious? Oh, that's a great question. I get lost. I just get lost in the moment. It's kind of, I don't know if you ever read the book Flow um, by Mikhail. Yeah. So it's like, it. it's a zone. It's a sort of, if you look at something long enough, it will start talking to you. It will start showing you. But you have to be willing to look at it. So I got that phrase from working with people in the trades, which are people who do things with their hands. They make things. They fix things. And if they get stuck, they step back and sit down and just stare at what they're working on. And then they will say, if you look at it long enough, it'll show you. It's very common in the trades, people who work with their hands. And artists. Artists say that, too. Like, I'm working this. I need to know when to put the brush down and stop painting because the painting starts telling me to stop. And so I know I'm being curious when I just get lost in that moment and I'm totally fascinated. And then I hear in my mind, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, wouldn't it be cool you know, I wonder how that works. I wonder what's going on right now. And especially when we're looking at other people, it's like, I wonder what matters to this person. I wonder what question this person's trying to, what, what are they wanting to understand? Or, or asking questions like that. Like what, where do you get stuck? And how do you know you're stuck? And where do you, you know, what, what happens? That self-awareness piece, I think Raquel is so vulnerable. You know, to be asked to go inside and notice, 
And vulnerability, at least in our culture, is people, the first thing people say when I ask what comes up when you hear the word vulnerable, they say weak. But how can we be curious if we're not actually being with the vulnerability of not knowing? Like, is it okay to not know? These are cultural beliefs. I think it's kind of fun. That we're kind of, un- well, me too. Like, what's better than hanging out with a four-year-old, right? They're the best. Four-year-olds ask the best questions of anybody. I mean, my 12-year-old has been asking me some pretty good questions too. But I, I, you know, I'll tell you, just living in another country, especially when I first moved here, think, you know, not knowing the rules, the unspoken rules, not knowing the language. And even to this day, there, I, I just automatically know that I won't know everything. And so I have fun with it now. <laughs> so it's just part of my everyday uh, existence, not knowing. <laughs> so, so it can actually be quite fun. <laughs> Well, and you, you know, that, that speaks to your confidence, your willingness to be uncomfortable and not know. It's like that sort of speaks volumes about your own self-awareness and your grounding and your confidence and your willingness. It's all personal growth. Yeah. If one of the first things, Raquel, and maybe this is an important thing to keep in the podcast, is there's no professional development without personal development. You can't grow as a professional without growing as a person, and you can't grow as a person without having that impact your professional life. It's all one. We're not two different people. Here's me at work. Here's me in my life. And then this third circle, which is here's me with me. A lot of people don't even know there's a third circle. There's personal, professional, and me. Me alone with me. And they all overlap. So when I first started coaching and being asked to do training, people would literally say to me, don't do any of that touchy-feely crap. Don't do any of that personal stuff. And I was like, well, where are the people going to (laughs) be? They're going to be there, right? (laughs) It kind of throws a different slant on things, which is, of course, you're going to grow personally if you're growing professionally. And it's the other way around as well. It's all one. It's a very integrated approach to growth, period. It's not that out there. (laughs) Yeah, it's not that out there. So I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you since the beginning of the podcast. I don't know where it fits here, but I, the other day or a couple of weeks ago, when I was doing, we were doing Google Hangout actually with a team doing Mm -hmm. a workshop, Mm -hmm. there was and I thought this was really great. There was one person who spoke out, very vulnerable, and asked and about if there were programs and, and platforms that helped people with disabilities. I think he had problems with hearing, right. if I remember correctly. Right. And then last week, I was talking to a, someone who does a lot of training in person. Now she's having to shift online, where she has some visual problems. So like for her to do it on Zoom, maybe the video is not a problem, but to read the chat and stuff is a problem for her. So she was asking too. So now this shift, you know, maybe people with disabilities have been learning how to work around in-person situations. And now all of a sudden we're thrown online in these circumstances. And I have no idea if you would give some advice to people who may not be thinking that there might be people in the room, the virtual room, that have certain hearing problems or visual problems and what would be important to pay attention to or check in with or listen to 
or vice or for those people themselves. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. This is a really important, relevant, timely question. As a coach, the first thing I say, and it regardless of the venue, is how do you learn best? And I've done that on Zoom calls and just said, use the chat, use the microphone, whatever you can. Tell me how you learn best. And that gives them an opportunity to say, I, visual doesn't work for me, I'm auditory, or I, I don't listen very well, so it's better if I can see something, if I can see what you're talking about. But ask them. The other thing is slow down. Most people talk way too fast. And they try to cover material. And if you're covering material at the expense of people learning, I covered it, so why didn't they get it? It's Howard Gardner back in, you know, the when he first started talking about multiple intelligences, said coverage is the enemy of understanding. Slow down. Coverage is the enemy of understanding. Which means I'm trying to get through the material and cover it. And the price of that is that people aren't understanding it because we're in a hurry. We're in a hurry to cover the lesson. And then they can't learn. And so my first suggestion is slow down because the important stuff will show up. You can't cover all of it. And then the relevance, here are my three R's of teaching. The first one is relationships, build relationships. That has to happen. People can't learn in front of each other if it isn't safe and you haven't built relationships. The second one is rigor, which means it, it's got to be really have enough rigor to keep people engaged, but don't push them past their zone of development or they'll freak out, right? And that's an art because some people can be challenged and challenged and other people are just catching on. So you have to pay attention to what's rigor for which person. People want to learn. They're happier when they're learning. And the third one is relevance. Relevance is determined by, can I apply this? Is this knowledge for knowledge's sake, or is this something I can actually use? They're both important, but, but things stick if you can apply them. How would I apply this knowledge? What are the ways that this would be useful for me? So, for example, my son is a professor, a theater professor, and he has students who are wildlife biologists and history majors and, you know, moms going back to school and they just think theater sounds like fun. And it is, but his challenge is how do I make theater relevant to a wildlife biologist? <laughs> what would make it fun to figure out a way for them to be able to apply the principles of acting or, you know, whatever in their world. So relationships, rigor, and relevance, those are important. And so it challenges us as teachers and facilitators and consultants and coaches and trainers to make it real. Like we don't have time to teach stuff people don't need. There's too much information out there. I know I say these things that I sometimes I wonder where these things come from, but it's just my observation of, you know, let's just skip that yeah. part because this is actually going to be more this useful. Is, since we're getting to the end of the podcast, um, I would love to know, is there a tool or something useful that you would like to share? I mean, you already shared a few things, but maybe there's one more thing you'd like to share. Yeah, I, this is one that I love and people kind of, their eyebrows go up when I ask them to do it, but because they think it's kind of 
weird, but I have science to back it up. When you're listening to somebody, physically turn and face them and line up your heart with their heart. Here's where this comes from. Your heart has an electromagnetic field that's 5,000 times bigger than your brain's electromagnetic field. The nurses at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston are trained to turn their hearts toward the patients to create a connection, an invisible connection, before they touch them or talk to them. It creates a completely different connection when you turn and physically face the person you're listening to and are intentional about lining up your hearts. Play with it. Practice it. Just do it for fun. It makes a huge difference. Thank you, Rebecca. That's really nice. And the fun thing is you can do that without telling anybody what you're doing, and then you can notice if it changes something. Notice it for yourself. And it's kind of then that thing you asked me about curiosity, that then we get more curious. It all goes together. And it just takes a kind of a vulnerability and a willingness to go, I've never heard of anything like that, but I'm going to try it and see what it's like. Nobody has to know. (laughs) There's my little tool for the day. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, how, how can they do that? My website is Rebecca. Johns, so it's R-E-B-E-C-C-A, Johns, J-O-H-N-S, coaching.com. I'd love to hear from people. Bring, Bring it on. I would love to hear from people. I learn so much more from my clients than they do from me. I'm sure of that. Well, one of the things I really appreciate always talking to you and, and over the conversations we've had over the years is that if we would have kept talking, it would have happened today too, where a lot of times a new tool will just appear between us that we can try out <laughs> when we're working with the groups. And that's happened more often than I use the some of the tools that we've, uh, that's kind of have kind of showed up in our conversations. I use those um, often, even to this day. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Even to this day. So yeah, listening so to, listening that. for, listening from, all those different fun tools. But, you know, I think if there's a last thing I want to offer up to everybody is lighten up. <laughs> it's This whole thing is not so serious, right? It's like the kids are watching. Make it look like fun to be here. <laughs> then I'll try that advice tonight <laughs> in a few moments once I get back to my family. <laughs> Take a breath, man. It's all okay. We're just here. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. And it has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, Raquel. And thank you for what you do. It's so important. It's such good work. I'm your host, Raquel Arp from Listening Alchemy. And I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with others for more practical and inspiring stories and examples so that we can catalyze a listening movement together. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.